are so glad that you are here on NFL Kickoff Sunday. Every Sunday is good, but every now and then we like to have a little more fun than normal. If you would reach inside your bulletin and tear off your sermon notes, I want you to be able to follow along today. And we're in week two of a series that we're calling Domino. In the thought of domino, I want you to think of the game dominoes. The thought of domino is that we believe as we read through scripture and as we understand Jesus' call, we believe that this thought of being a domino, this thought of falling into one and impacting someone in your life, we believe that this is both a spiritual understanding and we believe this has to be the spiritual direction that our church is headed if we're going to have maximum impact on our community. We believe that God has called the people of the church, the individuals of the church, to impact individuals outside of the church in a way so they can know who Jesus is. And here's some facts that we laid out last week for those of you who weren't with us. Jesus has called every Christian to show people who Jesus is and what a follower of Jesus is like every day of their lives. So Jesus is not just called preachers to tell people about Jesus. Jesus is not just called worship leaders to tell people about Jesus. Jesus is not just called missionaries to tell people about Jesus. Jesus is not just called people who know the Bible real well to tell people about Jesus. Jesus said it's the role of every Christian. Every person who claims to be a Christian has the responsibility, the responsibility to show people who Jesus is and what a follower of Jesus looks like. And it's not just a call. It's also a plan. That's the second fact. Jesus' plan for impacting the world spiritually is that Christians would live life intentionally trying to impact others for Jesus. So Jesus told his disciples, this is what I want you to do. But he basically said this, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen because this is the only plan that I have left for planet earth. If individuals don't tell individuals, nobody's going to know. But if individuals will tell individuals one at a time, everyone can know. And the truth of these two facts is that it worked. I mean, when we look back at 2,000 years of history of the church, it worked. By using individuals to impact individuals, Jesus' church has grown from 11 people in Matthew chapter 28 to over 2 billion people globally who now name the name of Christ. Although I, I want to be honest with you, I don't believe that statistic um, I don't think that statistic bears out in our world. The, the latest Pew survey said that 2.18 people, 2.2 billion people on planet Earth identify themselves as evangelical Christian. It says that 100 in America do, uh, 100 million. And I just cannot believe that if one out of every three people on planet Earth really loves and follows Jesus, that our world would be in the condition that it is. And I can't believe that if one of every three people in the United States of America really loved Jesus and lived for Jesus, that our world would be in the condition that it is. So, you know, I don't know that I buy the, the mass statistics, that, but I do buy this. It's more than 11. And 11 has duplicated themselves over and over and over again for more than 2,000 years so that you and I are here today talking about how to impact people for Jesus. But the question we want to ask today is how do we go from knowing this truth? How do we go from knowing the truth that Christians are called to impact people spiritually, and this is Jesus' plan for the world, how do we go from knowing this truth to owning this truth? You see, knowing this truth is learning something. Owning this truth is living something. And what I want to do as a church is I don't just want us to learn this truth so we have the answers one day when we get to heaven. I want us to live this truth so that the people engaged and involved in our daily life can be impacted by Jesus the way you and I have impacted by Jesus. Now, how do we go from knowing to owning? Matthew chapter 22 gives us a real good idea. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. 
If you don't have your Bible, our ushers have some that you can use. They're going to go down the aisle. If you need a Bible today, just wave at them. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began just like this. So if you need one today, wave at them and use it. If you don't have one, put your name in this one. Keep it. Take it home. It's yours. We're glad to give it to you. And I'd encourage you to read the entire book of Matthew this month and learn who the Bible says that Jesus is. But in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus shows us how we can carry out the Great Commission. Jesus shows us how we can make disciples. Jesus shows us how we can impact people for Jesus on a daily basis in a pretty simple way in Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with a pretty smart guy. This is kind of like a university professor, a seminary professor, somebody who knows a lot of scripture asking Jesus some kind of high-level stuff. And he said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, if you want to circle the words the law, he's asking there about the Old Testament. 39 books, starting in Genesis, ending in Malachi. The law was, was called, we call it the Old Testament The Jews called it the Hebrew Bible. He was basically saying out of all these 39 books, what's the most important thing in the Hebrew Bible? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets. Again, circle those two words, law and the prophets, and just write O period, T period, standing for Old Testament. Jesus is basically saying everything in the Old Testament, if you want the Cliff Notes version of it, here it is. Here's everything in the Old Testament you need to know. Love God, love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus tells us to do what we try to do every Sunday. Jesus said the most important thing is that you learn how to really love God properly. And every Sunday at our church, we are trying to learn how to love God properly. It's been the goal of this entire year. We're calling 2014 the year of Jesus From the very first Sunday of the year to the last Sunday of the year, we're engaged in trying to figure out who Jesus is, what Jesus taught, how Jesus lived, who Jesus was related to, what someone who loves Jesus dearly really looks like. So we understand that we're trying to learn how to love God properly. But after learning how to love God properly, our next step, according to Jesus, is learning how to love our neighbors properly. Now, Jesus could have used any word here. Jesus could have used the word teammate. And Jesus could have used the word community. And Jesus could have used the word uh, global missions or orphans or preachers. But Jesus used the word neighbor. Jesus said it should be the goal of every Christian to learn how to really love God and to learn how to love their neighbors. And what's interesting, when we look at this biblical word love, love is defined biblically in 1 Corinthians 13. And there's nearly 10 words that are used to describe all of them action words, all of them verbs, to say that this is what love is. So we know love is something active. Love is something, when you look at 1 Corinthians 13, that's very intentional. Love doesn't happen accidentally. Love is something that you have to actively pursue in order to really um, love someone well. So what we're talking about, according to Jesus, is this phrase that I never heard before May, but it's a phrase that has hit my heart for the direction of our church. I'm talking about, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, I believe Jesus is talking about intentional neighboring. And this phrase that you see on your outline, intentional neighboring, my prayer is that our church becomes known for intentional neighboring, which means this, that people who go to our church are the best neighbors in our entire city. 
And my hope is that our church excels in intentional neighboring, in loving our neighbors, because I believe, according to Jesus' plan, if we will love our neighbors properly and intentionally, that a lot of them will have the opportunity to really understand who Jesus is. But how does that work? Let me show you three ways, according to the scripture, that you and I can become intentional neighbors to fulfill the commission that God has given us of loving our neighbors as ourselves and making disciples as we live our life in the world. Number one, if we're going to be intentional neighbors, we have to embrace our call. We have to embrace our call. We, we have to first believe that Jesus is saying, this is what our life is supposed to look like. And then we have to agree to do that. In Habakkuk 2.2, God told the prophet Habakkuk, write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. God is always in the habit of making sure his message is very simply and completely conveyed to people. He told Habakkuk, no one should not know what the plan of God for their life is. So write it down, make sure it's real plain, make sure people have access to it. I believe one of the greatest acts of God throughout history has been the printing press that allows so many of us to have the word of God written plainly and simply that we can have and keep in our house. We have to embrace our call. And if you were here last week, or if you listened to the message online, and if you're here this week, You've got, a, you've got a decision that you can make. You can embrace the call of God on your life that it is your responsibility to impact the people in your life spiritually. You can embrace that or you can reject that, but you cannot ignore that and you cannot deny it because Jesus is very clear about the role of a Christian and the role of the call of God in their life to help people. And it's pretty simple. The, the call kind of comes like this. Step one of embracing the call is you got to hear it. Now, I believe, I believe, unfortunately, the call of God has become muddled in traditional church the last quarter century. Because I believe the call of God is much more simpler than many of us have, have had it portrayed to us. Because in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said very clearly, therefore, go and make disciples. But that word go correctly translated really means as you're going. Jesus is saying, as you live your life, make sure you impact people for Jesus. It's a very simple process. In Matthew 22, 39, Jesus says, start with your neighbors, love your neighbor as yourself. But this isn't the way that I've been trained all my life. I, I'm like some of you, but not all of you. I was born and raised in church, grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Had people in my church that if they would have heard the music we played on our stage today, they would have either lost their salvation or killed the pastor or went home and cried or, you know, the deacons would have had a cigarette. I mean, it would have made them very nervous. It would have been very hard for them to process through what, what was happening. I went to Bible college. I got an undergraduate degree in religion. I went to seminary. I got a couple master's degrees in religion. And I'll be honest, I never understood the simple call of God that people were just supposed to impact people they come into contact with until about the last six months. So I feel like the church maybe hasn't heard this because it's not been spoken to them. We want you to get engaged in a program. We want you to learn how to lead people to Christ. We want you to go knock on doors. We want you to invite your friends to church. But I don't think the church has heard that just, hey, every day in your life, you're supposed to have impact and influence for Jesus. But it's not enough just to hear it. Step two, you have to listen to it. Jesus had one of the most interesting ways of ending sermons that maybe any preacher has ever had. Jesus ended many of his sermons by saying, he who has ears... Let him hear. I like, well, what is it? What is that? We're like, were there a bunch of people who didn't have ears? Tell me, tell me exactly how that worked. Jesus was basically saying, listen, it's not enough to just hear this. I need you to listen to it. Like, don't just hear this with your ears. 
Listen to this with your life. Listen to it with your heart. He who has ears, let him hear. Listen to the truth. And then number three, embrace it. And embracing this truth looks like this. To truly believe that it's your spiritual purpose to make disciples of people in your life. I mean, to truly leave church thinking, my goodness, God's plan for the people of Lee Summit, for the people of Raymore, for the people of Peculiar, for the people of Independence, Bruce Springs, Overland Park, Olathe, Grandview, downtown Kansas City, wherever you may live, God's plan for these people is that people like me just help them understand who Jesus is. And it's not just part of my life, it's the purpose of my life. See, when you became a Christian, a transaction was made. When you became a Christian, you took your life and said, Jesus, here's my life, my plans, my goals, and I'm going to give them to you because the Bible says that my life, my plans, my goals, the end of that destination is not an eternal life with God in heaven. So I'm going to give you my life, my plans, my goals, and I'm now going to pick up and become a follower of Jesus. I want your life, your plans, your goals. And Jesus said, good. Now that you work for me, here's your job. You need to help people understand who Jesus is. It becomes the purpose of your life. But unfortunately, once we begin to walk with Jesus, we begin to miss our call. Sometimes we miss our call because we spend too much time in our own spiritual conversations. Like we get to a certain point spiritually. We get to a certain point in our Christian walk and really our faith becomes just limited to the people in our life who have like faith. And we think, you know, I've got my church friends, I've got my church crowd. These are the people that I live Christian life with. These are the people that are just a part of my life. But I really don't want these to mix and mesh. And instead of pursuing the call that God has called us to, we get kind of stopped up in conversations about things that are important, but not more important than our call. You know, if you read Matthew chapter 22 in context, it's very interesting because it looks like a lot of churches today. Because Matthew chapter 22 is a chapter filled with religious conversations that misses the call of God. When we open Matthew chapter 22, there's a bunch of Christians sitting together and they're discussing what everyone thinks about the end times. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about the end times? And what do you think is going to happen at the end? And what countries are going to be fighting in war at the end? And when do you think like Jesus is going to come back? And there's this discussion about the end times. And then this end times discussion moves into politics. It's like, well, what do you think about politics? And who'd you vote for in the last Roman election? And did you see how much they're taxing us? And I don't know, should we pay that much taxes or should we not pay that much taxes? And where's my tax money even go? And should I have to work so hard that I pay tax money that supports other people? And then it moves to theological differences. Hey, I was reading this text and what did you see from this text? Because here's what I saw from this text. And we see this, we see this chapter filled with spiritual conversation that has no target of a spiritual call. And Jesus steps into this, and they want to bring him into their spiritual conversation. Hey, Jesus, what do do you think about the end times? What do you think about Roman politics? Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this theological question? Tell us what what you're thinking here. And Jesus says, y'all are missing it. Like the most important things are to love God and to love your neighbor. Like beyond that, all this other stuff is just noise. And you got to understand, we've shaped our church because we believe that talking through life in life issues is great for Christians to do. I, I have grown the most through being engaged in small groups where I'm able to talk through life and life issues and spiritual issues and religion and theology and politics. 
I enjoy being in those contexts because it sharpens me and it helps me really understand what I believe. But when our spiritual conversations replace our spiritual call, the church's impact begins to really narrow. And churches begin to impact Christians, but not people who are outside the church who don't know Jesus yet. I have people all the time ask me about our church and my favorite phase of the church. Because in a couple weeks, we'll celebrate three years of meeting publicly on Sundays as a church. But I have people all the time say, you know, Christian, what, what's been your favorite part of, of starting a church so far? Like, what was your favorite phase of planting a church? And I always tell people, actually, the bigger it gets, the more difficult it is. The bigger it gets, really, the less fun that it is. Because I don't have as much connection with people, and I love people. And I tell people, I, th- I really think the most enjoyable days of our church were actually, at, our church is nearly four years old, not three Because in January of 2011, about 12 of us, 12 adults, began meeting to talk about the vision and the call that we had been given for this community. And for those first 90 days, our church was about 12 people. It It was just a small group. It wasn't a church. And I always tell people, that was my favorite part of this church. Like when when there was only 12 of us, that was the that was our church at its best for me. Knew everyone. We hung out at each other's houses. And we would talk, like we would get together and we'd have Bible study and we would pray and we'd talk about starting the church in the future and we would kind of say to each other, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be different when all these people start coming. And, and we would say, man, maybe we should just stay a little, like a, a little group um, because it's going to change. And when we get together now, we talk about how much it's changed now that everyone has come. But the reality was we all understood that our call was not to have a little spiritual group that existed to have spiritual conversation, but that our little spiritual group was supposed to expand so that everyone might hear about Jesus. And when as a church, when we decide in our church, when you decide in your small group, when you decide in your ministry that you're full and no more people can come, there's no more chairs, not enough time, when we decide we're full, our impact is done. It's over. We begin to die as a church the moment we decide we don't want any more people to come. And the reality is I look at that group of people that we started the church with. I don't see them as much as I used to, but when we see them, you know what we talk about? They're all leading their own small groups now. They all have their own groups. And I remember when we used to sit around and say, you know, one day it's not going to be us. One day we're not going to meet together in a small, like one day you're going to be leading a small group. You're going to be leading a small group. You're going to lead a small group. Are we willing to do this? It's going to be different. And everyone believed that's what God had called us to. So we need to be a church that consistently sits around and has conversations, but conversations about our call. Who's not here that should be here? Who can I impact for Jesus that's not here yet? Who am I trying to show Jesus to in my life? Because the reality is if we don't feel an awareness and we don't feel a burden for people near us who need Jesus' help, then we haven't embraced our call. Like if it doesn't bother us, That there are people in our life who don't know Jesus and love Jesus and aren't even aware of him. If we don't ever think about that, talk about that, pray about that, discuss that, that's a problem in the passion of our church. So we need to embrace our call and realize it's part of our purpose and it's hard and it gets us out of our comfort zone. But God didn't call us to a comfort zone. He, He called us to spiritual impact. Secondly, if we're really going to be intentional neighbors, we've got to embrace our place. We've got to embrace our place. And this comes down to believing in coincidence or divine circumstances. Meaning, we believe that God put us somewhere specifically 
or we believe that we just ended up where we were as a matter of chance. Because in, in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, Jesus said, love your neighbor. It's a pretty specific word, neighbor. Love your neighbor. Jesus' process for impacting the world was that people would love the people that are around him. So if discipleship is intentional living, then embracing our place is intentional thinking. It's walking into our house and thinking, I really believe God put me around these people for this specific time, for this specific reason. It's intentional thinking. It's going into work and thinking, man, God put me in this cubicle around these people at this specific time in my life for this specific season. It's, it's intentional thinking. It's thinking, God put me, my kids on this sports team and for 50 soccer games a year or a dozen football games or 50 baseball games a year, I sit with these same families talking about the same things, watching the same kids. God put me here for a reason or it's just coincidence. It turns into intentional thinking. There's this awareness of God. What are, what are you trying to do here? And in Esther 4.14, there's this reality in Esther that her uncle reminded her of, her uncle Mordecai. He said, who knows but that you've come to your position for such a time as this. Who knows if maybe God hasn't put you exactly where you are because there's a role for you there. And I think about this thought to love your neighbor. And the reality is most of us are so busy in our life and so closed in our spiritual life, many of us don't even know our neighbors. As I started preparing this series and talking it through with one of my pastoral coaches, he said, Christian, I've got something you need to see and you need to give to your church. And he gave me this magnet. There's actually one on the back of every one of your chairs. It's right behind the, your lower back. You may be sitting on it because you didn't realize it. And he said, Christian, I was at church a few years ago where people talked about, where the pastor talked about loving their neighbors. And he said, here's what he realized. He realized no one in his church knew their neighbors. So they created this little refrigerator magnet. And he said, you can take a, uh, like a dry erase marker. And he said, the pastor challenged the people of his church. Your assignment for one year is just to get to know your neighbors. Because if Jesus said, love your neighbor, but you're too busy to even know their name, think about them, think about impacting them for Jesus, then, you, then you're too busy. So he said, we give our people these little cards. And he said, some, um, for some people, they write their neighbors on them. Some, they write the cubicles in their work. Some, they write the families." that they have influence with, that their kids play sports. But he said, this, this magnet is the thought that God has put you in a specific place for a specific time with specific people, and you've got to be aware of that. Now, I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life when I wouldn't have been able to fill this out. I told our pastoral team this morning when we were praying, if you would have, asked, if you would have handed me this seven years ago, I wouldn't have known one neighbor by name. I was running so fast in my life. And I never stopped to think that maybe God had put me there to influence. So if I had to drive back today and knock on one of their doors, they would not even know who I was, even though I was their neighbor for five years. And I thought, all right, God, you've got my attention. I understand that I need to embrace my place. And think about this. Even if it took eight years, if we just wrote the names of our neighbors down and for one year at a time, we just said, God, I, I pray you'll help me influence this one. And then after a year, God, I pray you'll help me influence this. What would our community look like in a decade if every Christian spent a year focused on one neighbor for one year, helping them understand who Jesus was and what a follower of Jesus looked like? What would our community look like in a decade if every Christian in Lee Summit or Cass County or on our folks from the Kansas side 
or folks from downtown Kansas City, what, what would our community look like if every Christian did this for a decade? You see, we've got to embrace our call that we've got to impact people. We've got to embrace our place that we know exactly where we're supposed to impact people. But finally, we need to embrace Jesus' method of making disciples. Because the fact is, a lot of us hesitate, a lot of us tremble, a lot of us actually kind of repel from this thought, from this magnet, from this series, because we've seen this done wrong, we've been asked to do this wrong, we've had this done wrongly towards us, we've had people bang on our door and tell us we're going to hell, we've had some awkward things happening and we don't want to become that person who lives life to impact people for Jesus because we've seen that go wrong. But what if we did it the way Jesus did it instead of doing it the way we've seen it done wrong? Because when we embrace Jesus' method of making disciples, it's really not only pretty cool, but it's, it's pretty easy what Jesus did. And I believe it makes your life a whole lot more meaningful. If we hope to, bless, if we hope to make disciples the way that Jesus did, it should be our goal to bless people and put in the periods because it's, it's an acronym that stands for something. If we hope to make disciples the way that Jesus did, it should be our goal to bless people. So I'm going to ask you, your first really assignment for this teaching series is to go home and begin to write the names of your neighbors, to hang this refrigerator magnet on your refrigerator, and just to begin to fill it out with the names of your neighbors and their children, and maybe even what they do, or maybe the names of the people that have cubicles or offices around you, or maybe the names of the people on your kid's sports team. My goal for you is to go say, God has put me in this place around these people, and I need to have impact. But how do you do that? Here's my goal. My goal is that you pick one person and you begin to bless them. What is, what's that mean, bless them? The B stands for begin to pray for them. Begin to pray for them. You can begin praying for them when you eat meals. You can begin praying for them when you have prayer time. If you never have prayer time or you don't pray before you eat meals or you don't want to be praying for someone every time you say, God, bless the food, then just pray for them every time you see the refrigerator magnet. Just stop and say, God, just be with this family. Bless this family today. God, give me opportunity to show them who Jesus is. It's just this awareness, this spiritual connection that God threw you to them wants them to know about Jesus. God through you to them. God through you to them wants them to know about Jesus. It's this awareness that there's this person God has put in my life and I want to help them understand who Jesus is. So I begin to pray for them. The L stands for listen to their story. Then I begin to get to know them. I sit and I talk. My favorite question to ask anyone and everyone is where are you from? Because people love to tell their story if you give them a chance to talk about it. Where are you from? Then I try to find the most common thing that I can about that place or that city or their story. Listen to their story. This basically is nothing more than getting to know them. The E stands for eat a meal with them. You say, well, do we end the meal by asking them to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? No, listen, you end the meal by paying for it, right? You want to have influence on them. Say, I'll, get the, I'll take this bill. It's, a, it's an invitation to eat for free right? No, no strings attached. Eat a meal with them. This is what, if you, if you read through how Jesus did things, he would always start hearing people's story, sitting down, eating a meal together before there was any kind of spiritual commitment or even spiritual conversation a lot of times. The, the, the first S stands for serve them. You see, by the time you've begun to pray for them and you've learned their story and you've spent time at dinner or lunch or at a backyard cookout with them, all of a sudden you begin to know some needs that they have in life so you can begin to serve them. 
Say, well, how do I serve someone? Very simply, and again, very unattached. When it snows, shovel their driveway before you shovel yours. When they're away on vacation and their grass is long, mow their grass when you mow yours. When you put your trash out and you go out to collect your trash cans and you realize your neighbors are still there, pull them up the drive. Just little stuff. Little stuff that says, I care. And then finally, after you've done that, but not before you've done that, the second S stands for share your story with them. And share it through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. Now, we make a mistake as a church because we put the last S first. And we communicate to people, all we care about is your soul, but not really your life, not really your story, not really your job, not really your needs. I just, I just want to, you know, like my pastor told me to talk to someone about Jesus, so I need to do this real fast. Jesus took three years to make 11 disciples. Took a lot of intentional time getting to know them. And when I talk about sharing your story with them, listen, the most valuable spiritual information you can provide to anyone is what Jesus has done for you. And some of you aren't quite sure how to say that yet, but one of our church focuses in December, we're going to do a series called Story. We're going to walk through the Christmas story. But then in January, every small group at our church is going to spend six weeks teaching people to tell their story through the lens of who Jesus has been to them. So eventually they can share it with others. Now, here's the cool thing about this method. I have never used this method because I just learned it. I would have if I'd have known about it, but I didn't learn it till July. I've never used this method, but I can guarantee you it works because it's been used on me. And I don't even think it was intentional. I think literally I just moved next door to two of the greatest people on planet Earth. Because when Daniel and I moved from Kansas to Missouri to start our church, we lived in our house for nearly a year before we started our church. And we moved in next door to two people. The only step that, that maybe they didn't follow here, and we've never talked about it, um, is I don't know that they began to pray for us when we moved in. But we moved into two in next door to two people um, who you could tell it was important to them that they got to know us. And they always spent extra time talking to us. Um, they were always available to ask deep questions about our story. They got to know our kids. They got to know our little dog. Um, they listened. They communicated to us with their actions, you're important to us. Now, we became friends, and eventually we started going out to eat and having cookouts, sometimes in driveways, sometimes at restaurants. But we, we began to be friends with this couple, and then, and then they served us. So what did they do? I already mentioned it to you. It snowed one time, and they shoveled our driveway before we got out there to do it. One time we were away on vacation, we came back, they'd mowed our grass. When we were first starting the church, we used to have all kinds of mail delivered to our house, but we would actually be like at, at, out of town learning about other churches, and they would call us, and they'd be like, you know, there's 14 boxes in our garage for you, we'd like you to come get them now. They would check our mail for like months. And, and you could just tell, we could tell that these people cared about us, so when we learned about them, we, we, we learned to care about the things that were important to them because we could tell they cared about the things that were important to us. And it's funny how when somebody begins to care about you, the things that are important to them become important to you. Even little things. Like growing up in southern Ohio, um, you know, we, we had kind of the traditional sports, football, basketball, and baseball. Didn't know much outside the sports realm than that. Um, and I had never liked hockey up until about four years ago. I mean, I didn't understand it. Um, I didn't know what the, the bats were called, sticks. The little black thing was called a pug. Like, I, you know, I just didn't, I didn't get anything about it. But my neighbor loved hockey. My neighbor played hockey. 
So I found myself talking to him about hockey, and then I would start like when, when hockey came on Sports Center, instead of um, muting it so I could do something else, I'd listen because I think I want to learn about this. And then one time we even went to a hockey game. Now, he never sat down with me after a cookout and said, Christian, would you be willing to invite hockey into your heart um, and follow? Like, he wasn't trying to convert me to hockey, but because he cared about it, I, I began to care about it. And I know more about hockey now than I knew four years ago because somebody who was my neighbor cared about it. More than that, you know, where, where I'm from, you, like the word soccer is kind of a bad word. You know, I grew up in a very small school. We didn't have soccer. It just wasn't something we did. I not only, and we'll have to edit this part out of the message because my old football friends will make fun of me, but I not, I not only watched soccer, last Sunday I watched girls' soccer. Like I, I watched, I don't know if you know, there's like a professional women's soccer league and we have a team and we just won the championship, like of the whole country. So I'm sitting at home by myself on Sunday afternoon watching girls' soccer. And I thought to myself, only great neighbors would, would lead someone to change. And you know what happens when, when you intentionally neighbor someone? Listen, the goal of intentionally neighboring someone cannot be their conversion. Because then, then, then I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know that I like that. that that's kind of underhanded. Well, I'll be your friend if you'll accept Jesus. The goal of intentional neighboring needs to be to make a friend. The hope needs to be that maybe one day Jesus is, is as important to them as he is to you. But the goal of intentionally neighboring someone is just to say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to share my life with you. Because when you really share your life with someone, you begin to care about them and they begin to care about you. You begin to care about the same things. And this was Jesus' plan. Jesus didn't say, go stand on a box on the corner and proclaim the gospel. That would have been difficult. Jesus didn't say, everyone has to go on a foreign mission trip. That would be difficult. Jesus didn't say everyone has to memorize the Bible and know every answer to every question. That would be difficult. Jesus just said intentionally share your life. And if you will do this and people really see Jesus in you, if you care about them and you care about Jesus, it's a real good chance they'll care about Jesus too. Now, like I said, I've not done this yet. I plan to. I've got my little magnet hanging on my fridge, and I'm going to start praying specifically for some people that God's placed in my life. But I know from a great neighbor that this works, because when you have somebody who loves you well, you love what they love, and you're very interested in it. You say, well, Christian, how do I choose, man? I've got this magnet. I've got these eight people. I've got, I got like physical neighbors. I've got people sitting in my office. Um, I've, I've got kids on sports teams. Who, who do I choose? Let me, give you, um, let me give you a little guide to tell you who, who to choose. And I had this given to me two weeks ago, sitting with a pastor from Georgia, talking through this series, and he gave me this little guide, and literally I said, I've never heard that, give that to me again, and I pulled out my phone and I started taking notes. He said, here's how we teach our church who to really begin to invest in now. He said, we use a guide, A, B, C, D, and E, and we tell our church, if possible, try to choose people that God is stirring. He said, the reality is God is always at work in every person on the planet. And in your circle of influence, you've got some people who they've not committed their life to God, but God has begun to stir in them. And he said, here's how you can find those people. He said, you should just try to rate people in your life, not to remove them, but to have different plans to reach them. He said, someone who's A, A, B, C, D, E. He said, someone who's A is apathetic. It's someone with zero spiritual interest. 
And he said, we tell our people like Jesus to kind of let that one go for a little while. We don't tell them to cross them off the list. But if you're going to work for eight years, this person may need eight years of prayer before you begin the process. They have no spiritual interest. In Luke 18, 24, Jesus meets a man like this. The Bible calls him a rich young ruler. And Jesus said, hey, here's what it takes to really get engaged with what I'm doing. And the guy said, I don't know that I want to do that. He walked away. And Jesus said, let him go. Not that he wasn't worth the investment, but Jesus just said his, his heart is not ready yet. Let him walk. B is someone who's becoming interested. They're asking questions. Maybe they're watching you spiritually. In John chapter 4, we meet a woman like this at the well who's got lots of spiritual questions, a little bit of religious background. She's got, she's got real deep questions and thoughts going on in her own spirit about what God is, how God works. And when she found a friend in Jesus who could answer those, man, she was real open and interested in what was going on. So as you look at your little grid of neighbors, you might see some people say, hey, I saw that you posted on Facebook, you were at church, tell me what's going on about that. Or, hey, I saw that your kid went to youth camp, tell me what, I saw your little one was at VBS or that you did a baby dedication, tell me, tell me what that is. And you see people begin to, to ask questions and you think, okay, this, this person's becoming interested in who Jesus is. C are those who confess Christ, but they're very spiritually immature and they need to become grounded. Right? Like when you talk to them about Jesus, they're like, yeah, I love Jesus, but they love Jack Daniels as much as they love Jesus, right? And it's like, it's like, okay, this, this person's got a little religious background and they got the vernacular and maybe they went to Christian school, Catholic school, they've been confirmed, they've been dedicated, they've been baptized. They, you can tell there's a little faith background and they would call themselves a Christian. But you're looking at them saying, man, like, they may call themselves that, but it doesn't appear they know Jesus very well. This person, according to our mission statement, would be someone who's far from God. They may confess God, but they need to move a lot closer in their relationship with him. In, in Mark 9, 19, we see the disciples in this position. They, they had been following Jesus for a little bit, but Jesus got so mad at him. He said, how long am I going to have to put up with you? Like Jesus said that to his disciples. They confessed Jesus. They were following Jesus, but he was like, y'all are not getting it right now. We'll have some people in our life like that. Then there are, there, there are deed developing disciples. In Matthew 16, 17, Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. He asks Peter and his disciples the question that we'll begin our series in October 12th, a series we're calling, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Who are, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am? We could ask that same question today. And there's a lot of answers for who people think Jesus is. And then Jesus later goes on in John, in the book of John, he makes seven statements saying, I am this, I am this, I am this. So we're going to study who Jesus says that he is. But Peter said, you're, you're the Messiah, like you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you didn't, you didn't come up with that answer on your own, but God told you that. There's this thought that God is working in people, and you can look at them and tell them, like God's moving in this person. God is, God is speaking to this person. And then there, there's, there's this E, somebody who's equipping others. This is somebody who you look at, and you can tell they're already invested. You look at what they're putting on Facebook. You look at what they're tweeting now. You look at their Instagrams. You see their schedule. You think, man, you can tell this person's really, this person's really invested spiritually in the world. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, the apostle Paul tells Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust the reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. We see kind of a four-generation level of discipleship here. Paul said, I'm going to teach you, you're going to teach them, and they will teach one another generation. And the reality is, if we can build a church that disciples, that helps people know Jesus through four generations, we're going to leave a lasting impact on people in our community. Whether it's me telling you, you're, you telling your kids and your kids one day telling your grandkids, 
whether it's my coach telling me and then me telling you and you reaching a neighbor who one day invites another neighbor. You can see how this domino process, just one at a time, if we will fall into one, how God can use it in an incredible way. You know, our focus as a church always has to be generation next. I mean, it's great what God has done up until this point. But until everyone in this community knows Jesus, until everyone in our life knows Jesus, we've always got to be focused on generation next. And my hope is that our church so deeply embraces this DNA. My hope is that the most asked question around our church becomes this question, who are you blessing? And that we know what that means. Who are you blessing? I hope our small group leaders begin to end small group with who are you blessing? It basically means, who do you have your sights on to show them Jesus? I hope our morning volunteer huddles end with, who are you blessing? I hope when our greeters see people that they know and they recognize, or when you're standing out there having coffee, or when you're tearing down fold draped together, the conversation drifts to, who are you blessing? Who's the person this year that you've, you've really taken it upon yourself to love them well, to make a friend, and to hope that they see Jesus in you? Who are you blessing? See, Jesus' idea for making disciples is pretty simple, it's pretty easy. Jesus says, since you're going to be with them, and since I'm going to be with you, you should introduce us. Since you're going to be with them, and I'm going to be with you, you should introduce us. And I believe if we will do that one person at a time, even if that takes one year at a time, I believe the gospel will continue to dom domino throughout the rest of history that God allows us to have until Jesus comes back to lead everyone who has committed their life to him, which hopefully includes everyone who God has put us around. Will you commit to bless somebody this year and every year for the rest of your life so you can fulfill God's commission and his purpose for you? Let's pray.